I'd like to start by just reading a couple of verses tonight, short passages, but uh, important ones, I think. And the first of those is from the um, second letter of Peter towards the end of the New Testament. Don't often quote that quote very much, but it's an important one, and it contains one or two verses that say things more clearly than many other passages of Scripture on certain subjects. And this is one of them. So Second Peter chapter 1, um, and uh, verse 19, Peter's talking about the things that we can rely on that make our faith certain. He says this, And we have the words of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, by talking about the prophets there, he's not simply talking about the, the, what we would call prophets in the Old Testament. He's talking about all of the writers of the Old Testament. And he's saying, this is how it works. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what they said was bigger than they themselves could have thought out on their own. It's not just their works. But the other passage I want to read uh, is one that kind of contrasts with that a little bit because that's from the start of Luke. Just because you're carried along by the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you're helpless. <laughs> and sometimes you do the work and the Spirit shapes it and uses it. Luke chapter 1 is an example of that. Luke is writing to a guy called Theophilus. At least he's called Theophilus here. He may have had a different name uh, in reality, but uh, this is a name that Luke's given to him to protect his identity at the start of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, he talks to Theophilus first about what he's put together in this whole book and why he did it. So, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I mean, lots of people writing partial accounts about Jesus. He died just a few years ago. The resurrection happened. And people who believed in him started writing down all of the facts as they had happened, just as they were handed down to us. Um, therefore, he says, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In other words, while God stands behind every single word of the Bible, and it's his word, sometimes people stay up late at night doing the research, putting things together, and writing a book which is their book and God's book. <coughs> So, tonight we're having a look at the question, uh, the great question, can you really trust the Bible? And uh, in week two of these, these uh, talks, we've been looking at what key passages should you know? And what we've just mentioned, I think are two of them, very definitely. Two we mentioned last week as well. And I, if you've got some kind of idea where to find these passages when you're asked a question, then you can show that what you're saying about the Bible is not just your fancy opinion, but it's actually there in, in the Bible. The first one would be Psalm 119. You say, whoa, that's a long book. And yep, that's right. That's why it's easy to find. <laughs> if you open Psalms, the chances are you've got a good chance to go straight to Psalm 119. And almost any stanza of Psalm 119 will illustrate what the Bible's view of itself is. So any part of Psalm 119 is liable to help you when you're arguing about it. But as you can see, look what the Bible says about itself. The second one was the verse we looked at last week from 2 Timothy, where Paul says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Or what the word really means is all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture, everything, 
in the graphe, that's the technical word that the, 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 the uh, New Testament writers uh, used for their, their writings and for the Old Testament too. It's all breathed out by God. It's that close to him. Then you've got Luke 1, 1 to 4, which says, well, that doesn't mean that you don't have to work at it. And uh, just because it's God's book doesn't mean it's a human book at the same time. And, of course, you've also got Second Peter 1, the, the, the bit that we, we read first, which uh, makes the point that uh, no, no prophet in the Bible spoke on his own account. It's all given by God. So the word we looked at last week was this word theopneustos, breathed out by God. And we said that's what it actually means. A book which may be a human production, written by people who claim to write it, but nonetheless, which is everything that God intended to be written. And uh, we said the way that... Uh, Modern scholars have defined this claim that the Bible makes about itself is concursive action. Concursive, you might remember, means two things running alongside one another. If two people go out jogging or something like that, and they're in step with one another, and they're, they're, they're going at the, the, the same speed as one another, they're both running together. And two things are running together in the inspiration of Scripture. For one thing, Scripture is the word of God himself. No prophet spoke by his own interpretation. It's, the, it's something that was given by God. But on the other hand, it's also the work of a human author. And you can see there the fingerprints of those authors all over Scripture. In Micah and Isaiah wrote at exactly the same time, clearly knew about one another because one of them pinched a bit from the other one. <laughs> we don't know who did the, the pinching. But uh, because although they knew one another, one is a, a herdsman from out in the countryside, Micah, uh, and, and, and all that uh, he uh, says in his book, reflects his background. Isaiah lives in Jerusalem. He walks the corridors of power. He fr he's friends with the royal family, perhaps he's part of the royal family, I don't really know. But um, certainly he, he writes in a very different way from Micah, although they're writing at the same time, writing many of the same things. And God uses their different personalities to shape their books in such a way that their personality comes through, but nonetheless, the book says what God wants it to say. Well, now, last week we had a, a quick look at the question, can we be sure what the Bible originally said? And we talked about some of the great manuscript finds we've made over the last 200 years, which have made us absolutely certain that what we've got in there is totally accurate. Um, we talked about Tischendorf and this great discovery of the Codex Sinaiticus, that fantastic manuscript which takes us so much further back uh, around about 1849 and then Codex Vaticanus which was discovered in the Vatican Library not long after that and the two manuscripts together gave us a completely different and much sounder basis on which to translate the scriptures than we'd ever had for hundreds and hundreds of years. Then the Dead Sea Scrolls in their own day starting in 1947, most of them published by the end of the 1990s anyway, giving us such a fantastic uh, um, alternative view of, of the Old Testament from a bunch, from a completely different scribal tradition. Uh, the, the manuscripts which were found in these caves in Qumran, down near the Dead Sea, they're probably the library of the monks, uh, the Essene monks who lived in Qumran in the desert and kept themselves to themselves. And so they were copying scriptures at the same time, that other copies were being made in Jerusalem and all over the place. And when you compare their scrolls, which we hadn't seen for hundreds and hundreds of years, to what we had already, it checked out almost exactly. 
And it's incredible to see that we, we've got all these different lines running into the Old Testament. The Septuagint, the Greek translation that Jesus and his disciples would have used in their day. The Masoretic text, which was produced in Hebrew from the best manuscripts available shortly after Jesus died. The Dead Sea Scrolls and even the Samaritan Pentateuch from, the, from Samaria, where they had their own scriptures. And uh, although they doctored them a little bit and changed a few things to make it Samaritan rather than Jewish, nonetheless, it helped get right back to what the original text should say. So how about the New Testament? Well, for the New Testament, we said last time, the evidence is overwhelming. For one thing, they come from a much more recent date than the Old Testament. And so although we don't have any of the original manuscripts left, we don't have the original manuscripts of anything written at that time. And what we do have for the New Testament is much better than any other book. We've got an incredible number of copies for, for a start. Robert Grant, the great uh, Bible scholar, uh, commented that uh, uh, if you're starting out in research at the start of your career uh, to be a New Testament scholar, the biggest question you have to ask is which manuscripts you're going to work on. Because in the next 50 years in the job, you're not going to get round them all. <laughs> there are just too many. So you have to pick the best ones that you want to work on. We have so many copies of Scripture. There's the work of Jerome and Erasmus. Jerome, back in the 400s AD, uh, was asked by uh, the, 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 the Pope Damasus in those days, whose secretary he was, to uh, produce a new translation of the Scriptures before the old manuscripts were lost. And he insisted on going right back to the original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts and translating everything from absolutely first principles. And uh, people in his day who thought he was crazy, even St. Augustine, brilliant theologian, that he was scratching and said, I hear that Jerome is translating from the original manuscripts. That seemed a little unnecessary. But he went right back to the basis and that was a, a, a copy of the Bible in Latin, the Vulgate, which became the Bible of the Western Church for the next thousand years. And so he preserved what the manuscripts were saying in his day. Come the Reformation, the, there's a Roman Catholic scholar called Erasmus. He was a friend of Ludovers and Melanchthon and some of the reformers, but he, always, he was always a Catholic, stayed a Catholic to the end of his life. But he produced an edition of the Greek New Testament, which was fantastic. You see, people had relied on Jerome's work for so long, reading it in Latin, that all the old Greek manuscripts were disappearing. And when Erasmus sat down to do his edition of the Greek Testament, he could only find nine manuscripts to work on, and one of those was a bit dodgy, to be uh, polite about it. In fact, he didn't have a single manuscript that contained the last half of the last chapter of Revelation. <laughs> and he had to guess what the last chapter of Revelation would say in Greek from Jerome's Latin version. But he guessed brilliantly. And when we later on found manuscripts that had that half of Revelation in, yep, Erasmus was dead right. He was just an absolutely brilliant scholar. And so again, he created a, a, a version of the Greek New Testament which took it right back to the original, allowed the Luther Bible in German, the authorised version in English, all of the great Reformation uh, uh, translations into the languages of Europe came from uh, his work. So we, we've got incredible stories you can tell about the whole thing. And then there are quotations in other writings. And interestingly... It's been said that if all of the manuscripts of the New Testament that we have in different libraries around the world somehow deconstructed themselves overnight, if they perished away, or they all burned in a series of coincidental fires, you'd still be able <coughs> to put the whole of the original together just from its quotations in the writings of the early church fathers. They quote the New Testament all over the place. So we don't really need the manuscripts we've got, great as they are, because we know pretty much word for word what every sentence of the New Testament said. Are there still some uncertainties? Yes, very minor ones. Do any of them affect a, a doctrine or a story or a claim of the New Testament? Not at all. 
And so the manuscript evidence is, is far better than anything we've got for any other book. And we had a look at uh, all of this uh, last week as well, and the way in which uh, the New Testament stands up to any other text we have from the ancient world in terms of its reliability. Now, we've got to move on to another question. What's going on here? Do we have the right books in our Bible? And I'm dancing through this because I want to finish it before somebody has to go off and look at crabs and stuff. So, right, let's see how fast we can move on this one. Do we have the right books in the Bible? Let's begin with the Old Testament to start with, shall we? Have we got the right books? Well, the greatest of uh, Jewish writers in Jesus' days was a man called Josephus. He lived well, around the time of Jesus, shortly afterwards. And uh, he wrote a book called Contra Apion against uh, an Egyptian called Apion who, was, who wrote a book uh, criticising the Jews and saying, what they believe is just a farrago of nonsense. You can't believe a word of it. Ah, who knows where they get it from? All sorts of different places. And Josephus wrote Contra Apion against Apion to say, no, that's not true. We have not 10,000 books among us disagreeing with and contradicting one another, but only 22 books which contain the records of all time and are justly believed to be divine. Five of these are by Moses. From the death of Moses to the reign of Artaxerxes, the prophets wrote 13 books, and the remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts of the conduct of human life. You might think, well, hang on a minute. He's saying 22 books. There are 39 in my Old Testament. Oh dear, what's going on? Well, relax. Because if you count one and two kings as one book, one and two chronicles as one book or whatever, you end up with the number he's got in the and the way he describes the contents of the Old Testament in that uh, passage, we can see that his 22 are exactly identical with our 39. And he says, there's no question about these books. How firmly we've given credit to these books of our own nation is evident by what we do. For during so many ages that have already passed, no one has been so bold as either to add anything to them or take anything away from them or to make any change in them. That was the way that the Jews of Jesus' day regarded their scripts. They are sacrosanct. They mustn't be altered. You can't mess about with them. And uh, uh, if you... I don't know what that picture's doing now. This thing's playing funny tricks again. We'll just ignore the picture. But if you look at uh, uh, the, the problem we've got nowadays is that some Bibles have more books in than others. If you look at Roman Catholic Bibles, for instance, you've got some extra books that have been added in. If you look at Orthodox Bibles, you'll find there are two more even than that. And you think, oh dear, so we're uncertain about which books belong, are we? Who, what are these other books? Well, there's some historical material, 1st Esdras, 1st and 2nd Maccabees. There's some religious fiction, the most kind thing you can call it, fancy stories about Tobit, Judith, additions to the book of Esther, additions to the book of Daniel. There's wisdom writing too, a bit like Ecclesiastes or Proverbs. And uh, you've got Ecclesiasticus, which is a very different book. The Wisdom of Solomon, Baruch, the Prayer of Menachem. And you've got one book of Apocalyptic, a bit like Daniel or Revelation, and that's Second Esdras. First Esdras is history, Second Esdras is ooh, away with the fairies. But anyhow, uh, and the first thing you notice when you look at these books is what? they're not very sound. Christian doctrine doesn't seem to emerge very clearly from them. Whoso honoureth his father maketh an atonement for his sins. Uh, that's not a text I've seen outside many churches. Is that true? If you honour your father, you make an atonement for many sins. Water will quench of flaming fire, and alms maketh an atonement for sin. Oh, if you give enough money to God, you get off of your sins and you get to go to heaven. That doesn't sound very biblical, does it? Giving alms doth deliver from death, says Tobit, and shall purge away all sin. Well, it doesn't sound like the New Testament. For I was a witty child and had a good spirit, says, says uh, Jesus, son of Sirach, in his book, uh, uh, in Wisdom. I was a witty child and had a good spirit. Yea, rather, being good, I came into a body undefiled. What happened to the idea that we're all sinners? And from birth, 
uh, we're steeped in sin and iniquity. That doesn't sound very like it, does it? Give to the godly man and help not a sinner. Do well unto him that is lowly, but give not to the ungodly. Hold back thy bread and give it not unto him. That doesn't sound like the compassionate love of Jesus for all human beings, even if they are sinners, doesn't it? Doesn't sound like the forgiveness, for instance, of the father in the prodigal son story. Give unto the good and help not the sinner. Is that really Christianity? But so it's not very sad. It's also not very historical. Oh, that's a wrong picture once again. Don't worry about that. You'll see what that is in a minute. Um, Tobit, for instance, in his book, claims to have been alive when Jeroboam revolted. That was in 931 BC. And he was also alive when Assyria conquered Israel. That makes his total lifespan pretty long. 200 odd years? Uh, yet, it, we're also told in another chapter in the book that he lived for 158 years. So it doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, in the book of Judith, is claimed to be the king of the Assyrians. No, the Assyrian Empire had disappeared by the time Nebuchadnezzar came along. He was the king of Babylon, and so on and so forth. You find all sorts of little lapses historically in there that you don't find in the real Bible. And Wayne Jackson, uh, a, a, an evangelical scholar, says this. It must be observed that the apocryphal books make no direct claims of being inspired of God. Not once is there a, thus saith the Lord which is a phrase you find all over the words of the prophets in the Old Testament, isn't it? Or language like, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, you never find that. In fact, you get the opposite. In Ecclesiasticus, it says this, you are entreated, therefore, to read with favor and attention and to pardon us if in any parts of what we, seem to, we have labored to interpret, we may seem to fail in some of the phrases. That sounds like a very human author, doesn't it? Saying, if we've made mistakes, sorry, sorry, sorry. That doesn't sound like the word of God. So, you might ask the question, why would people accept it then? Why would they take this thing on board? I think there are several reasons. Number one, it's quoted in the New Testament. Two, it was included in the, all of the great manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, along with the Septuagint. Okay. You get all the biblical books, and then you get these ones added in as well. Some church fathers certainly did accept it, and they quote from it in their writings. It's found at Qumran alongside the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in 1546, the Council of Trent... Roman Catholic Council, the biggest one in history, accepted 12 books, the 12 that we mentioned, into the Bible, which is why Catholic Bibles now contain those books. Now, is this, are these good arguments? Well, let's have a look. First of all, it's quoted in the New Testament. Hmm. What, what do we mean by that? Well, if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, that great section that talks about the heroes of faith, you read about all sorts of people, don't you, stories that you know from the Bible. Women removed back their dead, raised to life again. Wait a minute, where's that story? Others were tortured, refusing to be released. It talks about people being sawn in half for their faith. And you think, where do these things come from? And the answer is, you don't find them in the Old Testament. Some of the stories that are being quoted, you will find in the Apocrypha. And yet, those stories are quoted in Hebrews chapter 11. In Jude 9, you've got this strange verse about the archangel Michael disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, which is one you never heard in Sunday school either. And then again in Jude, later on in the same book, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. Now these quotations uh, are from no part of the Old Testament. The Jude 9 one comes from Testament of Moses, which is an apocryphal work. Admittedly not one of those that we've got in Catholic Bibles, but it's still one of those books that Christ people used to read and say this should be in the Bible. And Jude 14 is from a book called the Book of Enoch. And Jude quotes it with approval. But... What you've got to notice is, none of this implies that these books are canonical, that they deserve to be in the Bible. You can quote all sorts of things without necessarily implying, this is the word of the Lord. Because even wrong uh, writers can get good ideas sometimes, can't they? 
And uh, Paul quotes, for instance, a Cretan poet who says, Cretans are always liars. Which is interesting. If Cretans are always liars, how can you trust a Cretan when he's telling you that they're always lying? Because he's like, no, oh, never mind. Let's not get into that one. But you see, Paul's not claiming that that poet, poet is, is, should be in the Bible. When he speaks in Athens and he quotes a, a Greek poet and, and says, uh, in him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting with approval an idea which he finds entirely biblical. But he's not saying that the rest of what those poets wrote was also biblical and ought to be in the New Testament. He wasn't saying that at all. Second, it was included with the Septuagint. Well, it's true. But that, then again, you've got to remember that parchment and vellum were pretty expensive. <laughs> and if you were copying out books, there was often a bit left at the end of the roll. And there, which is where you find the, the uh, apocrypha in the big manuscripts for, from way, way back, there at the end of the scroll, you think, now, what can I do to fill up the space? And uh, you didn't even want to waste the stuff. And as a Scotsman, I thoroughly, thoroughly approve of that. So you would add in something that was going to be helpful. And just because it's on the scroll does not mean it's part of Scripture. Some church fathers accepted it. Well, yes, some did, but not all church fathers accepted it, and the church councils didn't bother to discuss it. In 313, it became possible for Christians to come out from behind the parapet because Christianity became legal across the Roman Empire. And so 12 years later, the Roman Emperor Constantine said, right, let's have a massive congress. Let's bring together bishops from all over the Christian world. And he got over 300 of them to turn up, and each of them brought five other people with them. So that was, you know, getting on for 2,000 people that were there by the time they'd all, all found somewhere to stay. And they had a massive, massive and very, very important congress. Now, if you read Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, he claims that the contents of the New Testament were decided at the Council of Nicaea. Because Constantine said, okay, Christianity is going to be my major religion in the Roman Empire, but I want it to be nice and handleable. There are these 70 different possible gospels you could have. That's too many gospels. I want just, uh, let's see, three. No, no, I'll let you have four. Four gospels. Okay, choose four gospels, and that will be it. And so the whole of the New Testament kind of engineered into place, and lots of other documents were thrown out that could have been in there just because of the Roman emperor's demands. Not true. We know exactly what the agenda was for the Council of Nicaea. The content of the New Testament wasn't even discussed. Why? Because by then it was pretty clear, as you will see in a moment. But the argument that you find the Apocrypha with the Dead Sea Scrolls, well, yes, you do. But the interesting thing is that when you look at what the manuscripts come, are that come from Qumran, you find commentaries on almost every book of the Old Testament. And although you find copies of the Apocrypha there, you don't find any commentaries on any of the Apocryphal books. It's as if they were re recognised as being second-rate, as not being on the same, same grading as the others. And how about, finally, the idea that the Council of Trent accept, debated it and accepted 12 books? Well, it seems to me that the Council of Trent's decision had more to do with politics than it had to do with scholarship. You see, 1547... Luther had posted the theses on the door in Wittenberg in 1517. The Reformation had broken out all over Europe, and Protestants were going around going, look, just look in the Bible. Look what the Bible says. Most of the ideas that Pope has aren't in there. Ideas that you can, you can win salvation through paying alms and things like that. Ideas for indulgences for the dead. Ideas that, you, you know, you're, you're made perfect. None of those things are in the Bible, but they are in the Apocrypha. And so by adding those books in, the Catholics, who were doing pretty badly at that point in 1547, were able to, to, to give ammunition to Catholics all over Europe. So when the Protestants came calling and said, just look at the Bible, that your Pope's ideas are not in there. They could say, it's not in your Bible, but it's in mine. 
And so that was really what it was about, it seems to me. There was no great revival of scholarship that said, whoa, these books are accurate and we must have them. In fact, just a few years before the Council of Trent, a book had been published in the Roman Catholic Church by one of their leading scholars and had been given the papal imprimatur, and it was a book that said, there are 66 books in the Bible, no more and no less. There are others, but they don't count on the same level. How about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament Apocrypha is quite honestly rubbish. There are fictional romances about Jesus and Paul. Uh, there are spurious letters, acts and gospels that have no historical basis whatsoever and biased heretical material attempting to alter the teaching of Jesus. And it's not that difficult to, to, to work out what belongs in the New Testament and what doesn't. And from the start, really, there wasn't an awful lot of debate about it. And what you can say is that as the New Testament came together, it was more like picture one than picture two. The picture one is a sand dune. Sand dunes come together through influences. <laughs> uh, a sand castle, you look at that and you think, oh, somebody's built that. Somebody has actually been to work with that. I, and, and that's not what happened with the New Testament. It just came together quite naturally like a sand dune. And this is the way it worked, basically. By the end of the first century AD, there, there are two documents circulating amongst the churches. One is called the Fourfold Gospel, and it has Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in it. They are recognised as the only reliable Gospels. They are the words, the, the, the ones that were inspired by God. There's another book called the Corpus Paulinum, and it contains most of the letters of Paul, all of the big ones, maybe not the pastoral epistles, they were, they were a, a bit longer to be recognised. But already, with the fourfold Gospel and the Corpus Paulinum, you've got most of the New Testament already in place. And so the arguments are just about a few other books. And by the early uh, second century, 7,029 verses of the New Testament are recognised as the Word of God. That's out of 7,959. So you haven't really got that much more to argue about, have you? By the end of the second century, two strange books had been accepted, Revolution, Revelation, which seemed a bit weird, and Hebrews, which seemed very Jewish. And when people had read it and said, no, it's not, it's not as weird as we thought it is, then both of those books came in there, and now you're up to 7,737 verses. So there are only about 200 verses left to argue about. And by the end of the 4th century, you find there's a whole tradition of writing lists of what the writer thinks should be in the New Testament. And the most important list of those is one that comes when St. Athanasius writes in 367 AD. This is Athanasius, he was the Bishop of Alexandria, and he had the job every year of working out when the date of Easter should be, <laughs> and then sending it around all the churches in the Mediterranean so that they would all be worshipping, uh, doing Easter on the same day. You know, it'd be, otherwise it'd be a bit chaotic, like uh, people having coronation parties next weekend or something like that. So you had to agree about it, and Athanasius used to send around what he called a fest letter every year to, to give them the date. Now he'd always take the chance, as he wrote, to write a little sort of... Um, pep talk to the churches and for 367 he decided I'm going to write to you about the books that we all recognise as being part of the New Testament and uh, he lists the books that he thinks are in the New Testament and they're exactly the list that we've got now. He says there are also other books outside this list which are not canonical but have been handed down from our fathers as suitable to be read to new converts the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of Sirach, Esther, Judith and Tobias. I mentioned some of those apocryphal books that are in Catholic Bibles today and say 
they are second rate. They don't belong in the same way. And there's a lot more about that. But basically, 367 is, is where we start from by in, in saying that the New Testament is completely in place by then. And Athanasius isn't saying in his letter, oh, here, guys, here's my suggestion for the books of the New Testament. What do you think? He's saying, no, I'm going to give you a list of what we've accepted for years and years as the authentic scriptures. So we know it's all in place, and it's just come together. Why were books accepted? Well, as I say, it's like sand dunes coming together, just naturally. They were accepted because of authority, because they were written by an apostle, or somebody who was close to an apostle. And the author was important, because it was somebody nobody had ever heard of. You weren't too sure about it. Second, authorship. Was it written by the person who claimed to have written it, or was it pseudonymous? Was somebody claiming to be somebody he wasn't? For instance, when you read the Acts of Barnabas, the Acts of Paul in the New Testament uh, uh, writings, then one thing you can be clear about is they weren't written by Barnabas and they weren't written by Paul. And it's pretty obvious they couldn't possibly have come from that source. So authorship was important. Third, there was accuracy. Do they make silly mistakes like the Old Testament Apocrypha? Most of the, the apocryphal writings do. Are they accurate? Do they have after effects? Now, this was an important one. What do they do to people? Do they actually change people's lives? Do they bring people closer to God? Because uh, an audience in a particular part of the Roman Empire might get excited about a certain book or a letter that they've read for a while and think, oh, this is great, this is hot stuff. But if it's not affecting people in other areas in the same way, it's not the word of God. It's just a fashion. And so, so that was another thing that people looked for. And the final thing was acceptance. Which books do we all agree are definitely the word of God? And on those bases, they started to say, right, we now know what we've got in there. Now, I've not made it tonight, but let's, let's, let's uh, just take five minutes more on this last question. Isn't the Bible full of embarrassing mistakes and contradictions? Well, the first thing you've got to say is, are there clear mistakes in the Bible? We know that numbers can be wrong, there can be seeming discrepancies, and some historical claims can be, appear to be inaccurate, and that's absolutely true. But are these real mistakes? Let me show you what I mean. For instance, here's one uh, um, discrepancy that you find in the Old Testament. How many stalls did Solomon have for his horses? Now, that's not the most important question in the Bible. I've never yet met somebody who said, I've given up on my faith. I can no longer call myself a Christian because I don't know how many stalls Solomon had for his horses. It's not that important, really, is it? But it does say in 1 Kings 4 that he had 40,000 stalls for his horses. And in 2 Chronicles 9.25, that he had 4,000 stalls for his horses. Oh, mistake, mistake. Well, there are at least three different answers to that objection. Uh, one is, for instance, that it could be a simple mistake of the copyist, because 40,000 and 4,000 look very the, much the same when you write them down in, in, in uh, a Hebrew script. There's only one tick. <laughs> and possibly the original manuscript, which we don't have any longer, was absolutely correct. But some copyist has got it wrong, and that happens to be gone into the, the, the copies that we now have. That's a possibility. Alternatively, you could say, well, hang on a minute. Second Chronicles is talking about the start of Solomon's reign. And we know he became much wealthier in the course of his reign. So maybe 4,000 became 40,000 later on. Or another explanation is, well, 4,000 stalls for the horses. We know that he tended to organize his chariots in groups of 10. 10 riders, one chariot. And so maybe what the 4,000 is talking about is the little cell uh, of accommodation that would be for the, the outriders and the chariots. All of their horses would be stabled in the little place. Now, if you had a team of 10, that's 10 horses, then 4,000 stalls and 10 horses each gives you 40,000. <laughs> 
So maybe that's what's going on. And the word for stall is different in those two books anyway. So the one thing you cannot say, you see, whatever the answer is, is this is a mistake. <laughs> because there are all sorts of ways it could be explained about. Second Samuel 24 says, God moved David to number Israel. But First Chronicles 21 says, Satan moved David to number Israel. Which one is right? I mean, God and Satan, that's a big difference, isn't it? But actually, you can find that when God permits something to happen in the Bible, it's, it, they talk about God doing it. Whereas actually, if you're going to be totally accurate, he's just giving permission for somebody else to do it. So what the Bible is really saying is God moved, uh, God allowed Satan to move in David's heart with a wrong suggestion, which he would then put into action. You see the same thing elsewhere. When you, when you read in the book of Exodus that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't listen to Moses. That wasn't something that Pharaoh had no control over. It was actually Pharaoh who hardened his own heart, but God allowed that to happen. It's not that Moses went into the presence of Pharaoh and said, let my people go, we want to go and worship God in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, oh shucks, Moses, I'd really love to let you, but you know, I feel a strange sensation in my heart, it's like cement, I just can't do it. Sorry, I'd love to help you, but I can't. It wasn't like that. No Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but God allowed that to happen. And you find all sorts of other things like that. The adversity the Lord had brought upon Job. You read in Job 42. Yeah, but in Job 1, you read about Satan coming into the presence of God, don't you? And suggesting the whole thing and God saying, yeah, okay, you can do that. You can test my servant. So it wasn't Job who brought it on. God who brought it on Job. It was actually Satan. And uh, oh, there are other passages you can quote and same thing. Well, let me give you one example of that. 2 Samuel 21, 9 says that El Nathan slew Goliath. But we all know from Sunday school, this is what happened, isn't it? David slew Goliath. So, but in old translations of First Chronicles 20, most of the modern ones are silently corrected now, but in old translations it says this, and El Hanan, the son of Jair, slew Lachi, the brother of Goliath the, Hitt the Hittite. And it goes on to talk about how Goliath is killed. Now, there's a long and complicated explanation I'm not going to bother you with. You can look it up on the internet if you like. Gleason L. Archer was the guy who wrote the definitive article on this. He was an evangelical uh, historian and scholar, antiquary, archaeologist, somebody who's massively suspected in the mid-20th century, and uh, he came up with how this could have happened and what it's really meaning. It does not say that Goliath died at anybody else's hand than the hand of David. But uh, you just have to uh, look at these things without losing your nerve and say, okay, let's look. Is there an explanation here? And in every single case, there is an explanation. One more thing I ought to say um, uh, before we wrap all of this up, and that is You've got to ask, how much precision is actually necessary? We'll forget that bit. Um, sometimes the Bible isn't as exact as we would like it to be. Take the Gospels, for example. Sometimes the different Gospel writers arrange their stories in different orders. When we read somebody's biography, we expect to start, you know, chapter one is about their birth, chapter two is about them going to school, chapter three is about them falling in love, and chapter four is about having babies, and all the way through until the last chapter is when they die. We do it all in chronological order. But the Bible writers sometimes shift their stories around so that uh, clumps of material which comment on one another, which help you understand a certain point, are close together. And sometimes they don't tell stories exactly either. For example, how did Jesus hear that Jairus' daughter had just died? There are three passages in the Gospels that talk about it in Mark, in Matthew, and in Luke. And interestingly, we know that if, if Mark wrote first, Matthew and Luke had a copy of Mark. They knew about each other's writing. And so it's unlikely they would have 
made mistakes about uh, what the first person had written. But what you read is three different stories. So here we go. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus. Your daughter is dead, they said. That's Mark. Matthew, a ruler, that's Jairus, came and knelt before Jesus and said, my daughter has just died. Ah, so is it him that told Jairus? Or is it Jairus that told Jesus because he knew already? This is confusing. And you go to Luke chapter 8, and what you got? While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus. Your daughter is dead, he said. So what's going on here? Well, basically it looks as if Matthew is just telescoping the story. Jairus comes and says, Jesus, can you help with this impossible situation? My daughter is, has died. The other Gospels add in the detail that Jairus didn't actually know that his daughter was dead when he came to Jesus. He was still hoping against hope that she'd be alive. But actually, people came to his house while he was still talking to Jesus and said, Jairus, forget it. She's dead. It's not going to happen. Now, when those people came to, 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 to give Jairus the bad news and tell him his daughter was dead, it was obviously one of them that delivered the message. I mean, Mark 5 said, your daughter is dead, they said. Can you imagine them all lining up in front of Jesus? Hey, boys, are we ready? One, two, three. Your daughter is dead. They didn't do it like that, did they? It was one person who did the speaking. So they said it. There was a group of them there, but one person took the initiative and did the speaking. So there's no, no contradiction there at all. But uh, if you really want to be finicky about it, you could say, mm, there's another mistake in the Bible. So all of that stuff, I think you have to bear in mind. There's a lot more I could say here, and I'm not going to do it because you ain't got time. But I did want to finish by giving you what I think would be my three good reasons uh, that you could give to somebody who said, but you can't trust the Bible, can you? Isn't the Bible full of mistakes? The first thing I would say on the basis of everything that we've looked at is we know it hasn't been altered. We have the best manuscript evidence possible for every single word of the Bible the way it is. So many people think, oh, you know, the Bible wants to change down through the years. But when you start looking at the manuscript evidence, it's incredible. The second thing I would say to people is no other book has been so examined or criticised as this one, and it still stands up. I mean, critical Thought thinking about the Bible started way back in the early 18th century. Here we are in the 21st century, and people are still believing in the Bible all over the world. And not because they've shut their eyes and they're not looking at the evidence. Some of them are brilliant thinkers, theologians, scholars, academics, and still the evidence for the Bible convinces them that this is the Word of God. And uh, so if the Bible still stands up in the eyes of intelligent people nowadays, it's worth looking at. Third is the effect of it. The Bible's changed lives in every culture in the world. You can't say that about any other religious book. Certainly, sometimes they find a new audience for themselves. Uh, the Hindu scriptures, the Buddhist scriptures, uh, have made a big inroad in the West over the last hundred years, mainly because people have been looking for something different that uh, would give them a different kind of inspiration than the Bible that they really do. But you cannot find any kind of scripture in the world that's been taken to so many different cultures and made at home there. So that national churches have begun where people see the message of the Bible as applying to them in their culture, whether it's Arab or Chinese or Indian or Western, whatever. Nothing has shown the adaptability and the power to convince people and change people's lives as the Bible has and is still doing nowadays. We also said, and with this I'm definitely finished, work on your return. If people ask you questions about the reliability of the Bible, you might know enough about, uh, I don't know, Tischendorf or the Codex Vaticanus or something like that to answer some questions. 
If you don't, it doesn't matter. You can always look those things up if they're really interested and come back and tell them. A vague knowledge of what we've been talking about is, is all that you need on that. But you do need to know how to challenge them. So the most important thing I would say to people who start asking questions about their Bible, especially nowadays, is how much of it have you read? Because often you'll find that when people really look at it for themselves, the Bible is its own best defender. Charles Spurgeon said in the 18th century, defend the Bible, I would as soon defend a lion. He said, all you've got to do with a lion is let it out of its cage. And if people start reading the Bible, then they make sense of it. So that's the first thing I would say. Also, you could ask questions like this. People have been attacking the Bible for 300 years now. Why do you think people still read it? <laughs> that could start an interesting conversation too, couldn't it? And third, can you show me where the mistakes are in the Bible? Because so many people say, oh, the Bible shot through of mistakes and all kinds of things. They have no idea where to look for one. Now, you will find, of course, that some of the people you speak to have got a pet one that they will go into. Ah, Jonah and the whale, or whatever. Be one thing that they find impossible. And if you don't happen to know the answer to that one, it's easier now than it's ever been before to say, I don't know the answer, but I'll find it and get back to you. You go into, onto the internet, use Google, which is your evangelist friend, <laughs> to, to look up that question, and you will find answers all over the place to whatever kind of contradiction people say they've found in the Bible. We've got all of that at our fingertips, so you can arrange to see them again and say, okay, I'll check that one out for you, and I'll come back with an answer. <laughs> and uh, take it on from there. So the Bible can be trusted. And we have to trust it, otherwise we're going nowhere with Jesus. What they were saying in the coronation yesterday was dead right. This is the law by which all other laws need to be judged. And trust and obey. But there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust what God said and do something about it. Let's leave it.